वेलकम टू सन टॉक द सन टॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द एजेंसी ऑफ डिजाइन विल थिंक अबाउट डिजाइन इन अ जनरल सेंस एंड व्हाट इट कैन एंड कैन नॉट डू व्हेन डज इट फेल एंड सक्सीड व्हाट मेक्स डिजाइन्स रोबस्ट are the best designs easy intuitive synergistic and informationally efficient how can affordances and signals be created in an environment can design foster equity and empathy do different categories need different designs does a typical chair vary across the world is design always particular how are abstract or virtual objects different are most problems wicked and what is the very long term future of design we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today professor uday atwankar he is an architect and an industrial designer with an interest in cognitive psychology he is from iit bombay professor praveen kumar he is professor of financial economics at university of houston he also does research on mechanism design and its applications and professor rahul mehrotra he is a practicing architect and teaches at the graduate school of design at harvard university So Rahul why don't you set the ball rolling with you um in a somewhat unusual place of uh, what is bad design well we could start with what is good design but yes bad sure. design uh you know i mean i think design is really first of all in my mind a kind of synthetic process it's uh-huh. about synthesizing forces that we live with um some of these might be compulsions that are thrown our way sometimes they are excavations readings we make of a place a situation a condition from which we begin to draw nourishment to and so i think good design is one that uh, but you always have constraints don't you uh yes and i think a good design is where you can nuance those constraints in interesting ways and in sure. much more robust ways sometimes things that might not be evident as constraints but then they show up as constraints to backfire in the success of that design hmm. so good design is really about a sensitivity of awareness and uh uh a confidence to excavate from you around you and a good designer has the ability to do that forces that exist all around us but sometimes we actually ignore or don't want to address uh and good robust sustainable design comes from the extent to which you can nuance those multiplicity of forces and mm-hmm. so conversely bad design is one that is very singular monofunctional in its outlook uh and not ambitious enough in what it's trying to synthesize mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but is uh, and i understand that it's a stupid question at many levels but is 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 good design easy to do what makes it difficult what uh, is the nature of skill that you acquire over the years well i mean i think um uh, uh yeah i i think this sort of is a pick up on what i said earlier which is i think the range of both explicit and implicit forces problems conditions that you address mm-hmm. and i think the wider that spectrum of stuff that you address in synthesizing to address the design question for an object for a building uh for whatever you might want to conceptualize is what makes it good design And, and when you look at a situation do you always isolate a problem or a bunch of problems or a cluster of problems well i mean i think that would be different it could be part of your process so if your process might have a stage in it where you isolate a cluster of problems to mm-hmm. be able to get to the next stage of that design evolution process so i mean i think those protocols and processes differ depending on what but i think also simultaneously designers make intuitive leaps and right. uh, uh, and those are intuitive leaps seemingly 
random, but I think it comes from deep training and it comes from rigorous application that mm. you get trained in a way, and that's what good education is. It makes you aware of things that you make so internal to your own being that you have the ability to make those intuitive leaps. Mm. So, so what can design do? One is to solve or provide those functional... Uh... I mean, I think design at, at its best is doing many things simultaneously. Mm. And I think what we quite easily refer to as timeless designs and all of that classics and things mm. are ones that are doing so many things that they sustain time. So for example, if you think of a building, uh, besides what a building is supposed to do, what can a building do? Oh, a building can do many things. It can go all the way from providing, you know, functional shelter sure. in its most fundamental sure. way, all the way to what I sort of describe as dissolving thresholds within society. I think buildings actually are the most severe instrument. In a non-metaphorical way. Uh, well, in a non-metaphorical way, it creates empathy, which means that it allows a whole range of people. It's not about exclusion. It allows a whole range of people to even simply visually penetrate it uh, and to engage with its own life. They're buildings that isolate themselves as objects from society around them. So, I mean, in a more abstract way, just the question of empathy. Some buildings are empathetic and others are not. Others are about creating exclusionary statements within society. And cities are about the collective. And buildings must dissolve the kind of binaries that exist in our society, the polarities that exist in our society. Generally, I mean globally, sure. I don't mean only India. So sure. those are the two spectrums. And then there's a whole lot of things in between from questions of sociability and the way people can meet. Do these become places uh, or do they become mechanistic kind of spatial entities where people are in compartments and cubicles working and going home? Then that design is not doing more than one dimension of what it could potentially do. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, mm. I think it it has to do, I think good design has to do with the its ambition in terms of the range of things that it addresses. It also, yeah, and that's linked to the economy of resources too. Then that with those resources, you can do, you know, an amazing spectrum of things perhaps. Right, right. And Praveen, in the, in the contexts in which you think of design, um, uh, is the aspiration multidimensional again or, or is it a lot more monotracked, a lot more functional? Um, and what, what, what does design for you? Um, because clearly the nature of things that you think about are less physical and more conceptual, abstract uh, entities. Yeah, I mean, they are conceptual, but they're driven, you know, because you're sort of in, this, uh, in the social, political, economic uh, domain. I mean, they are conceptual, but the motivation is actually very, very sort of real world, driven by real world problems. So the the mechanism design, the way I think about it, or the kind of mechanism design that I um, sort of analyze is really trying to come up with systems which sort of try and achieve uh, a number of goals, but also re recognize uh, three major uh, constraints. So, so to give examples of multidimensional goals, so you can have, you know, at a at a societal level, a society can have uh, the goal of sort of having economic growth, basically saying let's grow the size of the pie sure. and then also have the simultaneous objective that as the pie grows, let's make sure that the pie is divided in such a way. Equity, the idea of equity. Yeah, but equity, but the equity also it can be multidimensional. It doesn't, it's not literally, you know, unidimensional equity. Okay, let's take, you know, X amount of money from this uh, income group strata and give it to somebody else. One could sure. actually say equity in the sense of like what, Rahul was talking, you know, about higher quality of life, and the higher quality of life may have non-economic, emotional kind of dimensions, and one can so so the mechanism design is really trying to achieve those conflicting objectives, and to me, a challenging design problem has to involve trade-offs, right? Because that's a great point. Yeah, mm. because if we could simply say, okay, just you know, get the best of this, get the highest of this get the lowest of the bad stuff, you know, we don't really need to be gifted designers. I mean, right. you know, everyone could be a sort of genius designer. Right. But it's because we have trade-offs, uh, that's where the thing comes in. And um, 
the constraints that you tip, you see in 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 at least the social political economics where there are three constraints the the first is you have dispersed information so the so the whole whole point is that you have in these complex societies we live in each one of us uh, whether as as an individual or you can think of as productive units like firms they have information that they only know they know you know their uh, their so native ability private information yeah private information they know information about their abilities their preferences uh, what they really like how much they are willing to work how productive are they what they are really good at the second constraint is and all three of these constraints always have to be together for it to be a challenging design problem there has to be cost of eliciting that information in other word if you can have private information but it was basically very cheap or or, or not easy to induce those private Uh, uh, information sure. that I don't care about private information. I sure. got it. The third thing that has to be there is that there has to be an incentive, what we call incentive conflict, and the incentive conflict basically says is that the private objectives have to deviate typically from the social objectives. Right. Because again, you could have private information, costly information production. but if everyone's objectives are aligned well people just truthfully reveal their thing yes. and, and no big deal so so it's really the combination of those three constraints and the mechanism design is really you're, you're designing institutions the way people are going to interact with each other in the economic sphere in the political sphere in the social sphere so that you sort of recognize those constraints and you recognize that they're going to try and do the best for themselves given their private information but your hope is that you can create a sort of set of let's say incentives right that even though they are trying to do obviously uh, pursue their own self interest right. they end up doing it in some manner that you actually advance the social empathetic goal right. that you want to create as as a you know as a vibrant society that you want to live in so if you think of a building for example rahul and you know this is this beautiful notion of creating incentives to create alignment and so on what kind of an incentive can a building or a designer or an architect throw up or what kind of incentives can be implicit in there does that makes any sense to you at all in, oh in it makes complete sense um, at at two different levels mm -hmm. i think uh, for me at least a very beautiful notion that uh, pravin just sort of outlined was that uh, the notion of unidimensional equity you know that's very beautiful because that opens up all sorts of right. ways of because we tend to take equity as how you divide something in a flat way right. so i think that uh, it's just resonating very deeply with me in terms of how one thinks about design and i i would sort of lay out two spectrums at least based on my own interests one is uh, how you create these different forms of equity they need not be uh, you know just Uh, quantifiable ways that you divide the pie mm -hmm. in a sense correct i mean i think you're alluding to that because notions of beauty or empathy take on other forms and and you know there are buildings that say for example in a corporation building which might be a headquarter you have the highly paid and you have the very lowly paid uh, they often don't have dignity in the way they can penetrate youth be part of the spatial dimensions of those buildings so then you create incentives or structures or processes create, for them to interact yes or, yeah, you yeah. can do that through design i you know i can give you an example of something we've tried to do where we've got a building which is a corporation building where the entire building is a five floor high garden mm -hmm. uh, and the gardeners who are the lowest paid this is the kmc building. yeah the kmc building in hyderabad yeah. where they have a catwalk where they can walk freely and on any floor around anyone's office <laughs> <laughs> and so they can stand outside a boss's office and look right at his screen and and then the boss can choose whether to put the blind down to cut them off and never happens in my right. observation in that building and suddenly the lowest and the highest class make eye contact for example right. they are aware of each other's presence now right. that's i think a form of uh, a kind of multidimensional empathy and equity because it's another form of equity where spatially you allow transgressions which otherwise culturally and socially uh, it doesn't happen in the business as usual model right. so right. i think that's one end of the spectrum through design sure. moves sure. and i'm sure in product design in many other fields there are ways you can address this uh, but the other end of the spectrum is i think as he was speaking occurred to me even more interesting mm -hmm. which is 
you know, how do you bring the question of the temporal in the design discussion? Mm -hmm. And uh, and I was just sort of, uh, you know, I think what was sort of um, mentioned was these sometimes not so obvious ways of dealing with this. So, for example, you know, one of the things that we, and it's been something that is of great interest to me, at least personally, is that we have not paid enough um, attention in our discussion about design in, in as architects, urban planners and designers more broadly, about how do you design transitions? In fact, a lot of what you look at what's happening in this country. By transition, do you mean? Well, transition from one state to the other. So even kind of creating the empathy that was being alluded to sometimes doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes you 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 sometimes you have to design uh, directions that are seemingly completely off, but actually taking you where you want to go. Right. And right. so so an example, at least that that comes to mind is India's energy policy and, you know, design of mechanisms, financial mechanisms, all sure. of that. If we have to go from fossil fuels to renewables, sure. our economy will collapse sure. because we can't make the jump. Sure. So we make a transition through nuclear, maybe gas, maybe other things to hope to come finally to renewables. Sure. Sure. Now that design is on a temporal scale because you have to almost design it that we don't get locked into these uh, in a permanent way. No, that's a different kind of design. And that's so, I mean, point. I think what yeah. resonated to me was that it's it's also a matter of thinking across these spectrums and sometimes in more complicated ways than might be obvious. I think that's what I got from some no, of those interesting. inputs. And Uday, if we... Uh Think of design, um, and you know, I mean, you, you, you've thought about this for so many years. In a way, it's about creating incentives, as 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 we've been discussing. Um, what is it about human beings and about all of us that makes it is it is it simple and straightforward to predict how things will go? Um, obviously not, I would imagine. So if we bring us into the equation, we bring behavior into the equation, we bring not just individuals but crowds which often act or behave in unpredictable ways. What happens? What is what is the difficulty of design, what it can do and what does it struggle to do? Let me first dispute the fact that uh, uh, it should do what you're expecting it to do. Okay. That's one. <laughs> Let me explain you what, uh, I mean it also takes off from uh, sure. the other two colleagues, what they said about it. Sure. Uh, first is at the lowest level design is basically converting intentions into some kind of a product building or something hoping that it will fulfill those intentions sure that's the basic we cannot stop at that because this is the primary purpose for that particular product mm -hmm. but there are too many stakeholders in producing that product each of them have different expectations. You know, for instance, those who invested money want their returns. Right. Those who want to create brand image, they have a different expectation. Right? Yeah. Government has regulatory expectations. So really reconciling all this to create, you know, what you're trying to say is that some of them may conflict, some of them may work together, sure. is what makes it a good design or a bad design. Mm -hmm. at, I would say at the lowest level. Mm -hmm. But that's not all. I mean, if you think of design only as fulfilling intentions, then we are underrating what design can do. Mm -hmm. One of the important aspects of design is that it should create an identity. It should create something that will go into museums in future. <laughs> it's something that culture should be proud of. Mm -hmm. So if you look at it for design from that point of view, then there are a lot of intangible qualities that you got to build into your design by which some of this can happen. I'm, I'm not saying that it will happen in every product, but at least it will happen. Okay. Uh, some so of the you're saying that a cultural aspiration is ideally necessarily a part of a design enterprise? Is that what you're saying? Uh, okay, if you're looking at designing for a particular user, his cultural aspirations do come in picture. But I'm talking about nation as a whole you know? mm -hmm. what is India contributed or what is a particular nation contributed in design mm -hmm. what will they show 20 years later in their museums now if you look at it from that point of view there are a lot of intangible qualities that design needs that have to come into product so it, it's not just fulfilling requirements of stakeholders mm -hmm. that would be rather too reductionist according to me mm -hmm. so you didn't need to build some of these things the second part about is in even at the lowest level when you're saying that you're fulfilling requirements of various users, it's important for you to first know who is going to use that product. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. We make a mistake saying there is X user and he needs these 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 kind of requirements. So, but you can never predict who buys that product, mm-hmm. who uses it, and how he uses it. And that's what makes design so very uh, so very challenging. You, know? you might have an intention, but people find different uses of it, and uh, you know. So to anticipate how different uh, different parts of cultures will use your product is extremely. But why is that bored. different uh, or difficult? Like if you want to design a car, you design a car. It's it's. I mean, hopefully, I mean there may be a few unknowns here and there, but broadly speaking, it's a cracked problem. And then. Um, um, what is the unknown in a situation of that nature i'm not suggesting that there cannot be innovation or new ideas um um but do, do you get the drift okay uh first is unknown situation is the context mm-hmm. most of the cars that we have mm-hmm. have very foreign looking designs okay? mm-hmm. now you look at our par- parking ethics mm-hmm. look at your driving ethics mm-hmm. the distances between two cars how could we have a kind of styling that is designed for people who have 11 11 feet of uh, lane assigned to them and they are quite distant from each other sure so obviously you need to look at the whole thing pro- uh, in a different perspective then all of us have chauffeur driven cars right? is there a typical car uh, okay we'll come to the typicality a little later but let me complete this chauffeur part please now if you're not driving a car your chauffeur is driving the most comfortable seat goes to a chauffeur <laughs> yeah. sure so we really haven't understood our culture so well in order to redesign the car that suits indian conditions but yeah. what about anywhere in the world uh that is true every, everywhere i'm saying but the cars which are designed for us of uh, uh, japan need not necessarily be the right cars for us sure we need to reconsider that completely sure. and i find that this is happening everywhere not just cars but almost all products which come from abroad they are obviously designed for that culture mm-hmm. and they cannot fit into ours mm-hmm. that's one uh, what was the next question i forgot my question really is about typicality um and and the previous question of what design can't do what does it struggle to do i think one understands this necessity or need to contextualize any design endeavor into you know where it sits and where it goes and who it is for um and it sounds like it's a difficult enterprise it's not straightforward uh, there isn't a typical consumer or a typical user and that's why there isn't a typical product um so my question to you really is what is difficult and how how do you as designers uh surmount those challenges okay let's come to this question of typicality yeah right Uh, since it has also been my research topic for quite some time sure uh for a, for every culture there is a typical product in every category for instance there is a cup which is typical in india which would be quite different than the cup that is used in usa or europe or something like that they're you quite think different so? yeah right. so it's a very culture specific idea okay mm-hmm. but you do not actually design for typical that's a wrong notion mm-hmm. okay to make another typical product nobody will look at that product nobody will buy that product so what you really look at is how distant you want your idea from the typical from the central member it's of from the central member see right. t- typical anyway is go- going to get formed so an indian car cannot look indistinguishable from the other cars that exist in the world is is broadly the point which is what is happening There'll right now there have to be now. some family resemblance yeah. or something yeah. which is similar so it is possible for you to create a product idea or a building which is away from the typical that's what most architects do that's what most product designers do they don't mm-hmm. want to be typical mm-hmm. i mean it's okay in a mass market a lot of people want to be typical that's fine that's because they're looking for volume which is the most atypical product you know or object uh, again typical is temporal atypical you could say that at least at I, the point in time it came to be iphone when it came was a typical mm-hmm. having everybody copying that idea iphone has shifted to it being very typical now Sure. Right. Once it becomes typical, it's now the responsibility of the next generation of innovators to actually find out an alternative which will become the next generation's typical. So, as a as a designer, my role is to influence the way people look at typicality and take it in the direction which which I am looking for. So, Praveen, are there typical mechanisms 
other atypical mechanisms other mechanisms are so of course mechanism is a super umbrella word i get it eventually it's a function of what one is trying to do whether it's a market context or a bit context or an auction context um but other designs that turn up or come to be which are super atypical yeah or, or is there always this family resemblance angle and trying to conform to or correspond to or correlate to some kind of a central member of what exists No actually I mean I you know what they were saying I made a lot of sense to me in the in the sense that you know the when we talk about typicality or what's typical I mean you know it's almost like we're taking like a you know like a, a snapshot right so right now it may be typical what's typical at a, at, a, at any given time it may have had a whole long history right. behind it so it, of going from avant-garde to commodity yeah so so the the, the 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 what's typical today at any given time starts out as being a disruptive uh, or or a new thing and eventually what people find is that it somehow Sort of, um, sort of satisfy certain needs that were already evolving, right. or, or certain resource situations that were already changing. You know, as Rahul was saying about the energy and and you know what's available and what what you really want. And then this this thing that started sometimes out in a periphery, the design is on the periphery kind of thing. It's kind of ignored, marginalized, mm. and suddenly as the underlying resource and preferences interact and they change, that thing from the periphery starts to Becoming become mainstream. more and more mainstream. And at some point, it's becoming typical. But the danger there is that when you see it as typical, what we don't sometimes realize is that we are, we may be seeing it. when it by the time it's become typical it's kind of the decline has already started yeah. so so the, the 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 next thing is already there under the radar are there other objects that stay typical and that may simply have to do with the fact that they are oddball or eccentric works but that that's not what we are discussing there are objects for instance buckets and combs mm-hmm. have stayed typical what does that mean in the sense that they're not changed the reason they're not changed is nobody is proud of them nobody shows them to others <laughs> so that's reason why they don't change mm-hmm. so a comb 15 years ago or 20 years ago is same as what you use now so in a way you're saying that the incentive to innovate the incentive to design new paradigms new approaches is is not equally distributed across the across the world it's it's happening a lot more in some areas and less so in other areas why is that i mean obviously there's some common sense notions about the need to innovate for combs is No, less it, because uh, it's, it's something like that it it's quite possible that combs can become an interesting category later mm-hmm. it's that designers haven't given attention to that it's possible that you can come out with luxury combs you can come out with many other things in combs mm-hmm. and it might become a fashion accessory once mm-hmm. it becomes fashion accessory its typicality keeps changing quickly mm-hmm. and the cycle is very small Mm-hmm. There are two categories. One is fashion. The other one is toys. You know, where typicality changes much faster. Right. Right. But right. in most of the other categories, it is little gradual shift that occurs. In them. Right. So as a designer, we are aware we map typicality and see what are the attributes associated with typicality, but never design a typicality. We are hoping that we'll do something which will become the future typical and not the current typical. about the typicality i would say that yeah there is like at least in the economic financial sphere i would say some attribute of things that stay typical really are like if you have designs uh, and i'll give you a very precise example in a second if you have designs that economize in a way on some uh, uh, you know important cause so, so in particular in 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 the financial economic sphere i talked about the private information so if you have designs that economize on the information that they are basically manage information in a very cost effective way but then they are satisfying a kind of like a perennial need that interaction of the two that satisfying a perennial need coupled with an economizing so to speak of the the cost of information will lead to a centrality for a long long time so the you know the the subtle kind of example of that is debt so, you know simply borrowing hmm. now here is something an interesting fact the world over across history most of economic activity has been financed through debt borrowing hmm. 
right? Mm. And people, you know, it's it's obviously much more in emer- so-called emerging economies because you know the the equity markets, the stock markets are very malformed, and they they have all kinds of uh, manipulation and stuff going on. But interestingly, even in the U.S., which is like the ground central of the most developed financial systems in the world, you still find debt to be the main source of investment financing. So what is the perennial need that economic activity, especially higher levels of economic activity, even what Rahul is talking, designing, you know, you build right. buildings. I mean, you can't finance it out of your a kitty uh, box, right? So you have to go get economic resources for it. Right. So there's always going to be need to finance, so to speak, or bring resources to do anything, a lot of the things. So, so what is the point here, Praveen? Is About, the point so, here so, so let me get back to what the thing. So the, the need is there perennial. So why is debt such a typical and robust and has survived history, survived you know space and time? Yeah. It is really economizes on information. And the reason why it economizes... So you're saying on infor- it is less information intensive? It is less inf- information. So if I bo- lend you money... Yeah. I don't need to really honestly... Beyond a point, you don't need to underwrite. Uh, I, I, I don't need to drill down to your what you're going to do with it and say, my God, is you know, is are you going to create 100 crores profit? Are you going to create five sure. buildings out of it? Are you going to create two buildings? The only thing I need to make sure and check is what is the likelihood that you'll just repay me so what you borrowed? So, 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 so yeah. it's, it's relatively much less economically, informationally, uh, sort of you know, economizes on yeah. a very important cost. So, so that, so and that, and I think that explains why debt remains so central because the need is Which kind is of everlasting. Idea, you know, yeah, right. and, yeah, and then it mm. couples with economizing. So those mm. two things, I think, lead to typicality over the long run. Hmm. 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 So there's a lock-in of sorts because. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is. Does that make sense to you? Uh, are there things that you end up doing year after year after year, decade after decade as architects, not you individually? Uh, because at some level, it is easy. The the underwriting or the call is not as complex. It is more predictable. But, you know, I, 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 I related in a different way. I want to go back to, you know, what they said about the comb in the bucket. I mean, I, yeah. now that he mentioned it, it's really, again, resonating quite um, in nice ways. Uh, you know, I just thinking that the comb and the bucket are so super functional in terms of the function they serve, you know, contain water, have a bath or whatever. Then if you think about it, they kind of morph or they develop when the comse becomes decorative and yeah. women actually keep it in their buns, uh, for example, yeah. uh, as a decorative element. Where but it ceases to be a comb then. Yeah, so correct. So then yeah. therefore it, it needs it needs just one spin on it in terms of another aspiration uh, from the user uh, that actually takes it from that essentially fundamental uh, kind of thing. And it, it just evolves into anything else, but it doesn't distort its, yeah. its fundamental function. And the bucket is the same. There have been conditions where buckets were, say, redesigned so that someone can carry them from the well to the house. These are mo- they, they are mutations in a sense of that pure form. So I thought that was a very good example where you begin to differentiate between it's kind of very essential. And that's where the debt thing, in the way Praveen sort of, I, I, at least I understood, presented it, that there's, it's, it's almost so fundamental. I'm getting money, I have to only make sure I get it back from you, nothing else. The moment it, it begins to take on other aspirations, whether it's a comb, the bucket, or even debt, it gets nuanced and complicated and almost becomes something but else. How, how, how fuzzy or robust or sharp are these boundaries? Does, it, does, is, does this journey from typical to atypical and vice versa have to do with its identity? And you use that word maybe in a slightly different sense. So in this case, when you go from using a comb for slightly other purposes, it kind of becomes another object. And then if you think of the world of objects... Are the boundaries sharp? Are the boundaries fuzzy? Are they essentially becoming derivatives of each other? And is that the way to transgress? Is that the way to do something with design? Actually, boundaries are always fuzzy. Or mm-hmm. they're completely non-existent. Mm-hmm. But they're artificially put there. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at it, the categorization from the Wittgenstein's point of view, yeah. the boundaries are extremely fuzzy. You know, yeah. So it's quite possible to get something from outside to come into the boundary through either marketing or through creating an example that's become popular. Uh-huh. You know, that's how iPhone came. No? I mean, that's how so many new ideas came, which actually were beyond a boundary, but moment they get What do out, you have in mind? So how do you make marketing? Uh, how do you do marketing and bring something into a category? 
no, it's it's something like that that you have to change the mindset of people. Yeah. Yeah. Now there are two ways in which you can do it. You can create great examples and people change their mind because looking at that great examples. Mm-hmm. Or you directly influence it through advertising saying this is good which is what most of the consumer could do right? right this is the right thing to wear and this is the right thing to right color to have and all that. both of them are actually working on your mind to change your idea of what you should wear or what you should use and things like that now these two mechanisms put together would definitely make sure that uh, the typical would change and your things which will outside that category will come in so the boundaries won't exist at that time Yeah yeah why don't we go to this other question on there which we spoke about earlier of how do you create affordances so if you create this thing which nobody has looked at before how do you make somebody pick it up or how do you make somebody twist it how do you create those possibilities uh, do you know what i mean you kind of do that as an architect maybe you do that in other realms how do you make somebody press something of course there are physical acts there are cognitive acts there are behavioral acts there are all kinds of actions eventually these are interactive objects or systems some something has to be done on them they are not entirely museum pieces that you just look at so let's think about that let's think about affordances how are they created and of course we understand it's not a straightforward objective tic tac to answer but actually most designers create affordances but with a slightly narrower mind because they have an idea of what is an ideal way of using a product Mm-hmm. so they put enough signals in order to for you to understand you know for instance if you have a handrail then where to grip is something which comes clear to you because you've seen you know what a handle should look like how to pick it up comes but, you but that's because it's the nth handrail what about the first handrail so when you look at the nth hammer you kind of know what to do with it because you know it's yeah. it's it's kind Instead of, of that let's look at the opposite side of it if okay. there are no affordances Mm-hmm. I mean, if you don't build affordances at all, what will happen? Mm-hmm. Is then, it possible to not build affordances? No. Let, let, let's take a theoretical. The fact that there let's are different classes of objects. Mm-hmm. Theoretical says that you forget the whole idea of affordances is not built into the product. Sure. Then what happens? Then all that you have to do is to put labels that this is a handle, this is a dial, this is this, this is right. that. So you don't put labels everywhere. Right. What designers do through creating affordances is to avoid those labels. so you don't have to write that this is an handle or this is a cover or this is something which so in that theoretical world which is now turning in the practical realm why do they do that why don't we have labels that's because otherwise why don't we have this thing saying cap turn screw why don't we have this thing saying water drink why yeah. is why is the world the not world like will that? become extremely complex if you have to read everything mm-hmm. so it's the way to kind of uh, you know avoid the complexity of the world Mm-hmm. Even categorization is the same story. No, you reduce the complexity of the world by creating categories. So, so the nature of the cues is visible, symbolic, uh, and they're cultural. Something to do with design and shapes. Yes, but they're also cultural. Like what? You know, for instance, look at our ritual products. Mm-hmm. Okay? What you do with them, you only know. For foreigners, they're just objects. Yeah. Yeah, you only so know bell, how, yeah, bell, for bell so. how to use it and all. For them, it's an object that they will see, appreciate, and maybe. use it in some other way hmm. Hmm. so part of it you cannot forget that we have a very long upbringing only humans have this this length of upbringing you know right. in the process you pick up quite a lot <laughs> right you pick up from your parents you know how do you decide what to wear for uh, for wedding and what to wear for funerals sure it's something that you pick up it's part of the culture right sure yeah. sure now if you want to disturb that Mm-hmm. Or want to create a new paradigm in that mm-hmm. you need to do these two things. One is that it has to be available to people in large quantities, and you need to advertise to change that mind, saying that okay, new wedding dresses But, can be like this, and, and that's what exactly. Yeah, is it and is it, does it need to be available and you need to advertise? It has to be in the public uh, forum. That's what is important. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a direct ad or it's just uh, you know press coverage or whatever it is. or mm-hmm. you can use the testimonials and things like that so any of this will actually make anything that you want to kind of communicate to people as new make it available to people in the public media does the affordances question carry to your domain pravin and the question in a sense is figuring out and evolving a certain common or similar way of interacting with a thing an object um and of course one in a sense advertising is informing in a sense i mean you 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 give visible cues or whatever does it carry into your domain 
uh, Rahul. Oh, absolutely. How, without labeling, without absolutely. Uh, so I mean, just to reframe it slightly to be able to carry it into my. I mean, I think what Uday was saying was very beautiful. Essentially, to me, what he was saying is well, culture first of all is an implicit set of rules in society. We never write the rules of culture. We just know it. it right, it's right. osmosis with time through parents, grandparents. and Nemesis, so, they copy each other. But yeah, no, but they're implicit rules that uh, yeah. uh, someone from outside the culture doesn't understand, right? Sure. So the question is, culture is also not static. Culture develops. Yeah. Uh, and you, we are also constructing culture all the time with new products. Uh, you know, we didn't have bottled water. It wasn't part of our culture. It's there, so it's becoming part of our culture. So in the process of constructing culture, I think that's where design plays a massive role because... In constructing culture. Of course, because... Uh, and we use the word design culture in our thing. What does that mean? That means how through design through the form of an object, uh, through what the object communicates, you also set up new implicit rules in society. Uh, that means that you, uh, you design things in a way that those rules are implicit and they get carried through the design culture. And, and that's how I understood. And I think architecture is like that. And in architecture, I think a more useful way perhaps, and it just comes to mind, you know, there's a geographer, Neil Brenner, who sort of first bought this up for cities and one can apply it, you know. You know, as architects, we look at the context. We use the word context a lot. And, sure. and, and or they were sort of describing it as people, your constituency, the users, all of that. And the context, the way we define it as architects is climate, um, availability of material, uh, you know, location, geography. Uh, and you can go a little further in the construction of that context um, by including culture. It's a little yeah. more subjective. How do you yeah. understand it? You could excavate deeper in constructing the context and you talk about the histories of the site, what existed there before, and, you know, and those, some of which are intangible, right? But I think... I think robust design and affordance and all the questions that we are discussing comes when you nestle that context as we understand it as designers or as people looking at financial mechanisms, etc. If you nestle the context in its context, so then you ask the question, what is the context of the context? And I think this is what I understood Uday alluding to. Then you have socio-political forces, you have the temporal scale, because there is a broader and almost a global context that is also influencing what right. we are doing. We often, as designers, isolate the context that we define as a context we are comfortable with. And I think good design is design that also has the ambition of connecting to the context of the context. And um, So in a sense, design is always particular. It, it always sits somewhere. I think that's a choice. You can make it very particular or you can connect it and intersect it with forces that are revolving all around us. I think, And I think that's what Praveen was also referring to in terms of some of the ideas he put forth. So what makes universal designs happen? Because a while ago, Uday was talking about at least this aspiration to try and create something which sits in a museum 20 years, 50 years, 100 years later. And well, you can start with that aspiration and succeed to some extent. So if you, if you look at designs that have carried on and design in a small D way, it doesn't need to be something hyper-specific or salient, what... What is the most eternal design or motif that you use as architects or otherwise, which which has been around for decades, centuries, millennia, maybe? I mean, in, in architecture, it's hard to separate a motif because sure. many things aggregate to make a building. It's much more complex. And that's why I think the bucket and the comb examples were brilliant because it distilled it down to, you know, essential objects. You mentioned the hammer. You know, what is the variation in a hammer design is very minimal. So there are some things that are so... But a house of 2016 is... It's obviously looks, feels, and you experience it very different from a house of 1,000 years ago. Uh, when you say feel, what do you mean? Because yeah. I would no, no. What is <laughs> no? What point. no? No. Yeah. What is what is interesting is that as our technologies get more cutting edge, mm -hmm. our houses are looking more and more traditional. Uh, in fact, uh, when we are living in cutting edge virtual realities uh, where we can be anything, imagine anything, where the movie theater, the shopping mall, ha your place of work has all collapsed into the object of the house because right. you're doing all those things sitting at home. Right. If you think about it, 
the house is getting more traditional. I can't believe clients who come to us to design houses and they pick up, you know, images of havelis or they pick up images of classical <laughs> villas and they say they want the house to look like that. There is a comfort uh, in a sense of history and rootedness through the iconography of a house where every other aspect of your life has gone into almost virtual space. But is that is that is that largely psychological? But this is what we have to ask over there. Why do people turn up wanting havelis? I mean it, it may be some strange instances here and there. Is there something what makes designs robust? What makes them carry on over centuries? Uh, I, I'll delink the robust business because it's slightly different. But you look at it this way why do people ask for haveli or why do people ask or you know in office building people say oh do whatever you like but i want a blue glass in the front hmm. yeah or Without, a corinthian facade yeah, <laughs> yeah something of that kind now that's because it is now in the modern society your identity depends on the objects that you carry the building that you live in and your connections with the uh, you know a lot of social things the clubs that you go to and sure so once that happens these objects are part of your identity sure and something that you would show in order to tell who i am sure so they deflect your personality in some way and sure. that's the reason why these requests come because he wants to show that he is rich how will he show it right so there's a signaling that's what greater kailash is all about right <laughs> and everybody wants to show their wealth But sure. you know I think what is interesting about that is that identity also like culture is in complete evolution we are always constructing yeah. identity yeah. and I would say this might be a very personal view but I think societies that are confident about their own being they construct particular kinds of identities that even look into the future so I would say the moment in India was at our nationalist phase with Gandhi even the rich were relating to khadi and simplicity and right. we constructed an indian identity now we are constructing a very hybrid Indian identity through the built environment and through design where we are borrowing maybe Japan went through this phase at some time or China yeah. went through this phase as we were discussing earlier that we are now insecure about our identity and so we are picking pieces which give us a sense of security i feel that very much as an architect sure. in terms of interactions with clients at least yeah i'd like to interject actually the um, this combining these notions of the and Rahul have been talking about culture and identity and you know how it relates to the mechanism designs in the economic and financial and social sphere and it's so i mentioned in the beginning that you know the one of the big problems you have to deal with in the mechanism design is the understanding that each individual is going to have their own private objectives deviating from the social objectives now how much you distort from your original objectives you know whether it's income growth equity and whatever right that's that's going to be magnified if the incentive conflicts are very severe mm -hmm. so now then the question comes what makes incentive conflicts at the individual level severe or not mm -hmm. and it turns out if you think about it that if the people have certain kind of common cultural understanding mm -hmm. you know and i'll give you a very concrete example in a second that makes it let's say makes incentive conflicts little bit less uh with each other so take for example creating uh, an effective income tax system that does gives you incentives for productive input plus allows for equity and allows for the right. resources to be distributed right well i mean just imagine two culture in one culture where tax evasion is the norm is yeah. part of the culture is part of the almost the identity and another culture where maybe because of the schooling they've had maybe because, maybe be, maybe because of some other kind of cultural pressure they have tax evasion is seen to be something or identity is that look this is against our identity right. to do that right clearly the mechanism the income tax designer in the latter one where it's part of the culture not to do it is going to have a huge much more flexibility they can create systems you know the income tax system that hits the all the penalties the risks yeah, the disincentives that, 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 that hits yeah. all the gets much closer to the objectives because they don't have to worry about giving those individual incentives whereas if we have the opposite kind the former kind of thing you're going to have to now set up income tax systems where your first priority is to try and 
minimize tax evasion. And once <laughs> you're trying to do that, good luck to all your other objectives that you originally had in thing. That's a great so, point. So, yeah. so, so, so I think culture and identity are hugely important in these, you know, these fundamental economic and social uh, uh, sort of mechanism designs issues at all. And, and, and we should think of it in a dynamic sense. We should be asking ourselves, what can we activistically do to create cultural practices, create identities that move us toward a little bit more of the common good. So people can tell somebody like Rahul, this is what is meaningful to me. If you put a public park here, you don't need to put all these gizmos, just give me this, this and this, you know, economically resourceful. It, it gives me all that emotional meaning that I'm looking for. But right now, if we have an identity where we are not together, I'm not going to tell Rahul that because I don't trust what he's going to do with my information. So that's I'll a beautiful <laughs> point, Praveen, because at some level, the the manner in which uh, the cultural bedrock, the social bedrock, all of these things influence the manner in which you make the financial structures. But for example, if you think of the way equity markets work or the way markets work in general in the in the in the capitalistic sense it somehow at least gives the impression that it's culturally neutral uh, the manner in which a stock trades in bombay is not very different from the manner in which it trades in in in, in new york and vice versa so is there is there something amiss there is there something which like for example the income tax structures the manner in which you design these mechanisms are they have to take into account the cultures that they're embedded in yeah, but I mean, that's not is, exactly the case with equity capital markets, for example. See, but this is the interesting thing the, about equity capital markets. I mean, you know, this is an example where the formal rules are the same, hmm. but the effect they have are different. Are totally different. So, so if you see the, uh, you know, that you have like even like China, for example, they've been having these stock markets for such a, I mean, and they, and their government has pushed in billions of dollars to develop their stock markets. But, it just doesn't but the stock markets haven't really generated sort of that financing and the There's depth no of participation. Yeah, the depth of, and the whole part of that is that you we all you can always see these booms and busts yeah. based on you know uh, paranoia about manipulation or uh, speculation booms and busts and. That is basically you have create you brought those formal rules, and put them in a totally different cultural and identity context. So it's like what Uday is saying. So you know, so now it's like yeah, the 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 you can it's like the label is the same, but the way the culture and the and the. I mean, if you carry a car from the U.S. and put it in India, it still somehow works, but somehow it doesn't seem to work in the context of the. Equity markets. Well, I mean, even there, I would question how much it works, right? Because I mean, if if, if, you, if you bring a, you know, to me, if you bring a Ferrari to India and you can only drive it at two miles an hour and get it dented after sure. one hour, you know, it, it's 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 working, but it's not, you know, giving the the so owner the same level of So, if you think of this as a design problem, and maybe there are problems which are not solvable, what does one do? I, I think the, the, the way to think about this is that, as I said, you know, it goes back to what Rahul was saying, that you have to think in design often in terms of long term. Hmm. I mean, it, you know, it cannot be, how do I just satisfy this need right now? I right. have these clients and they want this particular design and should I give it to them now? I have to be thinking, you know, this is going to persist for a long time, be around for a long time. What's it going to... So I, th I think going back to the thing, so we have to think about... That's a great point. Yeah, we have to think about, you know, like in, in the Indian context, I think we have to think about, you know, what are we teaching kids in our school? You know, are mm. we teaching them only to ace the IIT exam or are we actually teaching them to become some sort of responsible citizens that goes way beyond just getting 98.4% in some exam or something. Hmm. So I think if you think of it that way, interesting thing is it makes our mechanism design, at least in the economic social sphere, much easier, much more effective in the long run. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, come back to what Rahul said about Khadi. Yeah. It was a conscious decision uh -huh. by the leader uh -huh. to make sure that it is accepted as a pride. Yeah, it's for cultural confidence in a Con sense. Cultural confidence. Yeah. And showing of opulence was considered as bad. Mm. But that was through conscious design. But again, even these aspirations are not stable. They don't stay the same, right? I mean, no, they will keep on changing yeah, all the time. The question is, how do you influence them? And the question is, how and do you incorporate influence? the possibilities of change without necessarily having to disrupt and break the whole art, the entire edifice down and create a new one, right? I mean, it has to enable transitions without necessarily oh, totally. destroying I mean, the previous I think stage. that's Uday's point, that at the moment, it's powerful, it's a conscious, it's actually 
you know, I mean, Gandhi designed it like that yeah. as a project, as a strategy, right? I yeah. mean, the whole uh, chakra, the weaving, I mean, this was all part of identity construction. Yeah. And identities get constructed and they're relevant and then they change. And I think one example, just picking up on both Praveen Uday's last points, is infrastructure. I think the design challenge in the context of India today is that infrastructure in all its form, and we're only seeing physical. Mm -hmm. uh, so you look at social infrastructure, whether it's institutional design of all sorts, sure. is the big challenge in India for design uh, across physical design, institutional me mechanism design. We are looking at infrastructure. We are not looking at it creatively as a common good. Uh, and, um, you know, yeah. as the commons, I mean, literally. Yeah. And this all mono-functional infrastructure that's actually ripping the fabric of our society, whether it's privatization of education, that is infrastructure design, social, edu uh, social institutional and social infrastructure design. Yeah. So in today's need, I believe personally, for design of all kinds, as we are discussing around this group, is through the imagination of infrastructure which will construct a new identity of some form. Yeah. Uh, you know, all the way from IT to cell phones to flyovers to monorails to it's just there, so badly there, there, done. There's this constant trade-off in a sense between top-down and bottoms-up, isn't it? So if, 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 if there were to be this desire to create a certain kind of society, a certain kind of culture, a certain kind of economy, and so on and so forth, which 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 may be well intentioned, uh, but there are always but, these trade offs with individual freedom and so on and so forth, right? Well, uh, I mean, Praveen sort of put this very well, and he talked about trade offs, but I think this this nuanced view of equity, which is not a flat view of equity, right. is so fundamental to the question you raise. Because yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Uh, as design, whether it's how we make infrastructure accessible and the way it's designed and embedded into our fabric, I mean, there's just, it's endless what you can discuss about it. So what's the future? Why don't we spend our time thinking about that, uh, the long run? What's the future, Praveen? What's the future of how we design the world around us? Is there more that can be done? And of course, one 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 is if one buys into the long term project idea of some of these changes and not and and stay patient. What can design do and not do? What do you feel optimistic about and not so optimistic about? What is a wicked problem? What is an unsolvable problem? It's a question in a way addressed to all of us. Let's look at the future first. Yes. Let's look at the trend that has happened. You know, we we came from an industrial age yeah. to what one would call as information age. Sure. Where are we going now? Mm -hmm. There is some unnoticed change that is occurring in the society now, which is very important. And I don't think it is uh, very clearly expressed yet. But what I call as, there's a new age called community age. Community age. Multiple community age. Mm -hmm. Okay, You look at everything. Products are connected together. They form a community and work together. What does that mean? Uh, let me explain you what this is. When you use an ATM, uh -huh. there are so many things, that, ecosystems that you handle simultaneously. You know? right. ATM refers to the banking and banking has its own infrastructure. It sort sure. of debits it from that account. It sends you an email. It sends you a... SMS and all that so they use so, so there are no standalone entities uh, so there is no standalone they are yeah. always networked okay? yeah. so actually everything is becoming part of some kind of a community yeah. right? so are people forming communities you know? for instance what is Facebook Yeah. they are forming communities now Yeah. Okay? so if you look at community formation as the underlying principle of the current age then that is the mechanism that you got to use in order to make a change Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what is happening. If you look at Anna Hazare movement, he used community. You look at Arvind Kejriwal, uh, uh, he, sure. he uses Facebook. Yeah, Even BJP used Facebook. You know, because they're creating communities by which some change occurs. Now, it doesn't mean it's a desirable change or an undesirable. That's a different issue. But I have a feeling that in future, it will be creating and promoting certain kinds of communities which will create new age and new innovations. So nothing should be now seen as a being isolated, and you know. so your identity will come from the the community that you belong to, and that is going to be the crux of the problem. And you can belong to multiple communities. Yeah, yeah. and you will belong to multiple communities always. Yeah, but isn't it there already? It is already there, but it's not accounted for in designing. 
So in what way can it be accounted for in design? It's quite and a lot. Design of everything. Yeah, design of everything, including design of institutions that he's talking about. No? But design of See, physical w- objects. Yeah, I, earlier you talked about top down and bottom up. Yes. Okay. Top down way of doing it is okay. Here is an institution which will do this, and this is a mandate. Sure. Okay. It's quite possible that that communities can develop through their own interactions that happens on social media. They can create an institution which is very different, which is bottom up. Now we are not giving chance for that to happen, or it's probably not happening on its own. Whatever the reason is, but the way new things will be formed will be very different. So, what are the constraints? The constraints are access to resources, information. Access to information. Sure. That's the most one. and that is actually gradually going you know so once the greater access to information that is itself would hopefully yeah. lead to so it will create its own and s- some of the ideas will survive some of them won't survive it will have its natural that's okay, level, that's okay. so I, i i i look at that as something very positive that can happen in future yeah yeah what's the future praveen yeah no actually just picking up on that i mean i think the post information age one of the things that we have to realize is that this thing about designing whether it's financial institution social political institution designing for a particular need or you know that is going to be really not a very effective way or, or to looking at it mainly because the access to information is going to basically almost ensure that the needs and are going to change so fast because you now have such fast exposure i mean there's a high frequency environment so high f- high frequency not only is the needs going to change even if you were to try and do any top down thing the 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 new the fast freq- information access is going to give people so many ways to evade yeah. or maneuver or manipulate those kind of things so you, you basically have to lot of our old kind of design concepts at least i'm i find now in economics and finance and so on are basically in almost going in the dustbin of history so you right. now have to think about kind of like what today is talking about think in terms of basically allowing people to sort of you know be sort of nurture or, or to undertake activities which they now have much greater sort of uh, abilities so to do so what could that mean in the in the financial economic context so essentially what i'm trying to say is that it it it's it, we have to sort of take account of this the new sort of huge new dimensions of free, uh, degrees of freedom that we have but sort of do it in a way so that everyone is still playing f- according to some fundamental fair rules just simple fundamental fair rules so i'll give you examples so one of my lot of my recent research is on crowdfunding hmm. so you know it's a totally different way of funding it's opened up a whole new area That's so i talk thought. about this thing but a lot of my recent so research is showing so institutional big box top down ways of deciding what goes where right i mean that that's complete version of that yeah there's a flip version so 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 here it's like the way the typical crowd you know kickstarter and you go there you know people have a particular product they have in their mind uh, that they have designed or something and they'll put it there on the website and then you basically see whether you're going to be willing to, to but, fund- but but as we iterate over this Praveen and sorry to push you on this uh, is it possible for stuff like this to move beyond the cottage scale at all and I'm not suggesting that it makes sense only if it is at scale but if you fast forward two centuries is it possible that the entire financial structure of the world the global economy kind of runs on this crowdfunded way is it possible a lot of my research is showing that you know the people who participate on this crowdfunding platforms they can be manipulated by the person who's putting in their product not just by putting in fraudulent product but just that they can set up the the funding level in such a way to basically extract economic surplus from the people who are actually contributing to that so the future whether it can actually uh, you know it has huge potential because it sort of creates democracy of yes. uh, investment access now even a 100 rupee villager can be part of a new pro- product which otherwise would take them 200 years to get but that is only going to happen if you know they don't get manipulated right by the way so that is going to require a particular kind of some sort of regulation but i think i keep going back to that that there's some sort of self regulation something that the mechanism takes care exactly, of exactly that's right that's right but regulation but in the legal sense not in the legal sense but the mechanism takes care of but the, the but the design of the mechanism would be way facilitated if you go back to that thing about you know can we build infrastructure exactly i think that was a beautiful right. intangible analogy that rahul gave can we build that infrastructure so that you know at least there is some sort of reasonable assumption that people are going to play according to some right. rules and and the reason that they're going to do it is that they, it's part of their identity they just don't feel good about 
you know, ripping Which somebody else off. The Commons, it becomes Commons, a yeah, ripping somebody else off. And, and if we Which can is do essentially that, the it, cooperation it, question. How do you get people to be reasonably fair agents? How do you get people? And, to, and I think yeah. it can. You know, the Scandinavian countries are a great example. Part of it, of course, is they're homogeneous, but but yes. but but you know, they, they have the sense of community. But you can see, you know, like they have the highest tax rates and still the highest rate of efforts. Best medical system, best social welfare system. So, so, so it and can design, best design, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, best, and amazing design. Yeah. yeah, and so you can see. Yeah, we are obviously we don't want to give up our diversity and our this thing. But I think again, I go back to you create that infrastructure. Especially education, to me, is one of the the most important intangible infrastructures. And we do it right. Yeah, it'll take maybe one generation, two generations. So maybe you do a couple of generations of education right and crowdfunding might work. Yeah, exactly. So at least we're on the right path. At least we're on the right path. What's the future, Rahul? You know, these last two interventions were absolutely exciting. Uh, One, uh, Uday's, um, you know, uh, uh, description of the community Uh and this sort of in today's world because of technology being able to even simultaneously belong to different communities. This is just like a powerful idea for and for design, this become very powerful. And then I think uh, what Praveen sort of has uh, laid out here, the crowdfunding idea, uh, the kind of diversity, the checks, the balances, again, implicit in what he was saying was how technology has now got us to a point and how do we um, tame it in a way, in a productive way. And so I couldn't but help think, and this is part of our conversation earlier about education, which is, I think for design in the future, the biggest challenge is ecological thinking, that we have to not think of these as ecologies. And in ecology... and Interdependence, context. Correct. So then this is where we are finally as a species ready or prepared to understand nature maybe, because (laughs) nature creates these checks uh, in in ways things disappear, re-exist, exist in different incarnations. So I think for design in the future, being able to shift the culture of design to more ecological thinking mm. where uh, the interdependencies of many systems and the impact little things can have on big systems and vice versa. And in that context, Rahul, actually multiple memberships is a good idea. It's a de-risking mechanism of okay, sorts. Totally. Yeah. So this is what nature teaches us. Yeah. Uh, and so this ecological thinking, I think, uh, for the future is very important. And from that, I think, comes the question, uh, you were saying top down, bottom up, and it just occurred to me that I think one of the, and something that also as a designer I'm interested in is that we you know to understand the world we tend to set it up as binaries top yeah. down bottom yeah, up rich these dichotomies will be totally dichotomies etc yeah. and really what design is about is synthesis yeah. is you synthesize many forces to create something else and so I just want to go back to the first question you asked which yeah. I wasn't at that point prepared to answer and you said what is bad design and we change the conversation to what is good design so we'll but I would say bad Bad design is design that actually does not synthesize adequate number of forces uh, and is not cognizant of the different forces that influence life. It's not ecological. It's not ecological in its aspiration. And good design is one that at least has those aspirations. Thank you. Thank you. That's a great note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it. And we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.